following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Good to see you. We're reading the scripture in Ezekiel in the 15th chapter, and I'm going to dip into the 16th as well this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there to Ezekiel 15. Continuing our series of reading through the scriptures together, for those of you that haven't been here, and we uh, selected the book of Ezekiel in the morning and uh, 1 Chronicles in the evening right now, so we can keep on reading through. We finished the New Testament some time ago, and we're working through the Old. Ezekiel 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make any object, or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. And now, chapter 16, verse 14, verses. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, Nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field where you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed you, thoroughly washed off your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and chain and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. 
for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. And we'll pick up there, God willing, the next time we have opportunity. I welcome you to turn your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel this morning. Kind of in between series uh, in the Sunday mornings, I finished in the book of Titus a little while ago and thought that I would uh, take a few Sundays to speak on the grace of God, and then it became uh, uh, interesting to me to share with you some of Matthew's gospel, since we're in that series on Sunday and Wednesday nights, and uh, it is indeed very interesting, so I hope that you will find it that way as well. Matthew 11, 1 through 19, we'll see how far we get this morning, and I've titled the message, John the Baptist's Prison Depression is prison depression. I'm really, I'm not trying to make the text just an answer to a modern problem, although I think it does give us some insight into that, but we're going to try to extract from the text what God intends for us to understand from it. The Bible does give us direction on how to handle depression, and uh, in almost every case, and I might say, and some of you might say, in every case, particularly if you're a Christian, uh, you can get your prescription right here. In the scriptures. You don't have to go to outside psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and all of that to find a prescription for you when you are depressed. And uh, let's not pretend that all of us go around with a smile on our faces all the time. Uh, you know, there are some hymns that actually make it sound that way, like, you know, I got saved and I'm happy every day, you know, after that. Well, sometimes we just aren't and we have to deal with that reality. Chapter 11 and verse number 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And so it's just a narrative note here that records that after Jesus instructed the 12 disciples and their ministry, remember that was chapter 10, go and preach the kingdom of God, cast out demons, heal the lepers, raise the dead, and then he talked to them about all the difficulties that would uh, you know, come along with the ministry that he had assigned to them. Uh, and then he also briefly at the end of the chapter, verses 40 to 42 of chapter 10, speaks about some of the blessings attached with uh, doing the mission and the work of God. Now he says, the text says, they, they left and uh, then he departed from there to teach and preach in their city. So guess what? He was going to go do the same thing that he was having them to do. They were joining him on his kingdom commission in order to preach the gospel, to call for repentance, and to heal the sick and so on so that they would see the messenger was authentically from God. That was really the point of those miracles that he did. So he continued the ministry he had been doing and became number 13 to go out with the 12 that he had instructed to go out before. Somebody asked, Recently, well, what exactly did it look like for Judas Iscariot to go out with uh, perhaps probably another partner? You know, the 12 maybe went two by two, so uh, six teams. What did that look like? I don't know. But I can imagine because there are lots of what we might call hangers-on in church life and in, in spiritual life who just they kind of hang on, they hang around, but they're not necessarily awakened to the things of God. They're not really with God necessarily. And, and that's a, a grief to the heart of the shepherd, the great shepherd and the under-shepherd of every church to see folks that are in that kind of situation. So maybe uh, 
you know, his partner, whoever was, you know, lucky enough to be partnered up with Judas Iscariot, kind of did most of the work, most of the miracles, most of the talking. Uh, who knows uh, how that worked? But that was what was happening from chapter 11 and verse number 1. Now, I want to give a little background to the next section, which talks about the imprisonment of John. It says in 11.2, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And then Jesus answered this question of the disciples who were freely able to move about while John himself was, was not able to do that. Jesus knew about John being in prison since chapter 4 and verse number 12 in Matthew's gospel. Uh, no need to turn there, but I'm there now. And it says, it says, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So already for the space of these uh, number of chapters, 4 through 11, John has been in prison through the period of the uh, giving of the Sermon on the Mount the initial uh, miracles in chapter 4, the later miracles in chapter 8, and the work of the Lord uh, varied as it was in chapter number 9, forgiving a paralytic and, and healing him and question about fasting and healing a girl that was dying and so on. All of that time, Jesus, uh, John rather has been in the prison. Very sad situation. So immediately after the temptation in the wilderness, Immediately after the baptism of Jesus, sometime, maybe not immediately, it's maybe overstating it a little bit, but shortly thereafter, get that in your mind. Here you have John who's risen to prominence in the religious life of Israel, not that he wants to be prominent. He says, I must decrease though, and, and he must increase. And so actually what God does is he sets John aside so that John does become sidelined, really, sends him into prison. Now, the whole story is told in a retrospective manner in chapter 14, which we haven't come to, obviously, yet in our study, but uh, the Gospels do this. They will give the text or the, in, in, in a non-chronological order sometimes, and that's what they do here. Um, what happens is uh, John's in prison. He's there for a little while. He's beheaded, and then Herod, who was responsible for killing him, hears about this miracle worker going around the, the nation. And he says, uh-oh, something's happened. And his conscience begins to show it's bothering him a little bit. Herod heard the report about Jesus, and he said, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. And then it explains in the past what had happened. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him because, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Well, this Herodias was his brother Philip's wife and then became Herod's wife. And so John is saying, look, you can't do that righteously. That is wrong. And although he wanted to put him to death, it says, he had this fear of the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And then you know the story about Herod's birthday and daughter Herodias comes and convinces him to uh, give them the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and as the king goes ahead and does that, uh, beheads John in prison, and um, that's what happened. Then the disciples came and took away the body of John and buried it and went and told Jesus that that had occurred. But that ending hadn't occurred yet in Matthew chapter 11. 
So Herod imprisons John for criticizing his marriage, not much closer to the heart of a wicked ruler than his women, and he doesn't want them to be, or his relationship to them to be criticized. And so besides that, Luke chapter 3 tells us that John was calling out the leader for the rest of his evil deeds, all the evil that he had done. Besides marrying his sister-in-law, Brother Philip's wife, he protested that it was illegal, John did, for him to have her as wife. She was next of kin. She belonged to his brother properly. But he was so enraged, he wanted to kill John. But also, Herodias herself wanted to get rid of John. She didn't like being criticized either. They obviously had such a lust between them that they got married and they refused to heed righteous teaching. But Herod was constrained by two fears. So he wanted to just get rid of this guy and make him go away, but he couldn't do that because so many people saw him as an important figure. Uh, so he just you know, put him away in jail for a while, ice him. Um, but that wasn't going to be good enough for Herodias yet. And he also uh, says in John, uh, Mark 6.20, says that he feared John himself. He had some modicum of, what, decency or religious concern. Perhaps we could just forget about the nice words and just say he was superstitious. He was a man who was a prophet of God, obviously. And Herod was messing with that prophet. John was holy. It might have been a case, and again, of superstition, that if he did not treat John well, he would be cursed. Of course, why didn't that concern him that he put John in prison? Wouldn't that be enough to get the curse if you were a superstitious person? It all doesn't make sense, but sin never makes sense. It's, you can't find a real rational explanation for it. Obviously, what he should have done is listen to John, and even if he didn't listen to John, you know, put his big boy pants on and be able to take some criticism instead of being so sensitive about what was being said to him. If he wanted to sin, sin. Boldly, just do it if you're going to, instead of being all sensitive about what is going on. I'm not telling you to do that because you're Christians. But why can't people in the world just do their thing and, and ignore what people are saying if they're critical of them? And look, if you're in a public place, you're going to receive public criticism, right? If you're a leader, you've got to expect it. That comes with the territory. But anyway... Herod was constrained by those two fears of John himself and also of the multitude. See, he had a political reality to deal with, which is kind of good if you're constrained in a righteous way by the multitudes of people. That's kind of nice to have that at least to restrain evil. See, God does still restrain evil, doesn't he? But ultimately that didn't happen in this case. Well, eventually circumstances came about such that he was able to carry out his desire albeit at the urging of his stepdaughter, and despite the fact that he still seemed to have some misgivings about it and political ramifications of it, he got painted into a corner and, um, and did that. Now, I just want to focus a little bit on the situation from John's perspective, if you want to think about it. Put some color on this, black and white picture, if you will. How long was John in prison? You ever think of that? Some suggest six to ten months, others a year, others up to two years. The chronology is a bit murky. We don't have dates and times on everything. 
um, and the, the Gospels aren't arranged in a chronological fashion. Um, you know, like, for example, in Mark chapter 6, you've got the record of the record of John's arrest and murder, and then it goes back to Jesus' ministry, which happened before John's arrest and murder. So, you know, you have to kind of carefully piece things together. Matthew 3 tells us that John did baptize Jesus, so we know that, that John was around that long. We know that uh, in, in uh, John, uh, or rather in John, yeah, in John chapter 3, remember at the end of John 3, uh, John is still baptizing after Jesus meets with Nicodemus. That's when he said, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, John one twenty nine tells us that John saw Jesus, and this kind of comes up later on. He says that, hey, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove. So John saw all of that, continued to baptize people for some little time at least after Jesus was baptized. <clears throat> the reports of Jesus got back to Herod apparently during the ministry of the Twelve as they itinerated around the nation. So sometime after the 12 were commissioned, but before they came back. So when he sent them out, they went for some months. This was not just like go out for a week and come back. It was like travel to all these places, and it's weeks and weeks and months and months before they came back. And we see the record of them coming back and the Lord saying, come apart and rest a while. Do you remember that from the Gospels? They'd done all, done all this traveling, all this teaching, all these miracles and uh, it was uh, time for them to come aside and rest for a little bit. So after the 12 are sent, I think it's obvious that it becomes kind of a national issue. Here's all these people going around healing, miracles, all this sort of stuff. So the news comes back to the leader now. Something's really happening. This Jesus is having an impact on, uh, on the nation. Notoriety is growing because all these men are going around spreading his message. Herod knows that John is dead, but he thinks he may have come back to life. And so then the apostles returned from their ministry, and it seems to indicate in the text that John was killed before that happened. I'm on the bottom of page two in my notes. If you're following along, they are available on the website if you want them as well. In uh, chapter 11, we see in here in Matthew that John is alive, he's in prison, and he's asking about Jesus. So sometime after the disciples are sent, sometime before they come back, he's asking about Jesus. And then Jesus, at the end of chapter 10, notice when he talks about the reward of the disciple or the righteous person or the prophet, I think he may be alluding to the fact that John the Baptist was in that kind of situation. Herod had not received John the Baptist as you would receive a prophet. He had not received John the Baptist as you should receive a righteous man. So what kind of reward do you think Herod was going to get? Yeah, it was going to be rough when he faced God because all God had to do was drop one name, John. What did you do with John, my servant? Rough. Rough. It appears that Jesus sent the 12 uh, about the uh, end of 28 A.D., sometime in there uh, uh, when the disciples were sent, sometime before that. John was imprisoned, late 27, early 28. And then he was probably in prison, from what I can tell, for about a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Okay, So all that background is just meant to kind of highlight in your mind here is a man of God 
sitting in prison for perhaps a year, maybe by this time six, nine, ten months. And, you know, after you're in prison for about a day, you're sick of it, right? Uh, I've never been there. I mean, I've been in prisons, but not because I'm a malefactor. I've uh, been visiting there. But, you know, it's, if you're a righteous person and you're sitting in prison and you're wondering, why am I here? What is God doing? Why is this happening to me? What, what is being accomplished by this? Why can't I just be free and, and all of that? John is languishing in prison. And on top of that, it's not just like, you know, he's there for, you know, a, a one-year sentence. He's there and he figures the only way he's getting out of there is in a casket because he's going to die. They're going to leave him to rot in that prison or they're going to kill him like they ended up doing and he's going to be finished. Every night he goes to bed thinking tomorrow might be my last day on earth. That works on a person, doesn't it? That works on a person. So John is is understandably depressed and he is going to ask a question that indicates that in Verse 2 and 3, when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, so he's hearing just as well as Herod is hearing, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, by the way, when you're in prison, probably the only way you could really be sustained is if some of your family or friends came and helped you, you know, uh, slip food under the the door or whatever, um, make sure that you are cared for. And so he sends two of his disciples and and said to him, to Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? This is almost shocking when you read it because John is the one who announced the coming of the Messiah. He said, Behold this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. He baptized him. He saw the heavens open. He heard the voice from God. He said, He must increase. I must decrease. What has happened to him? Truth has become obscured to his mind. When darkness veils his lovely face. We sang earlier this morning. Darkness had descended upon John's mind. His spiritual vision had been blinded, obscured, because of the difficulty of the circumstances in which he was in. And I think you could easily understand how that could be. You know, you could say, well, I thought I had it right, but I'm not so sure now. Did I make the right choice? Did I do the right thing? What is happening? Something was wrong. John had been preaching the coming one was going to baptize everybody with the spirit and fire. Where was that? He would bring judgment on the brood of vipers and anyone who would not repent. And then Jesus came and John thought, hey, it's all going to unfold now. Everything's going to start working according to plan. But it did not. There was something else going on. Jesus was still preaching the kingdom is coming. In fact, giving the same message that John himself did. John, remember, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same exact message. Jesus was offering the kingdom. He's calling for repentance. He's healing multitudes of people from their diseases, raising some from the dead. But John was blind to these things in his depression. He was overlooking them, not processing them properly in his grief. Perhaps he had a a strain of the zealot in him. What's happening? The Romans are still in power. Jesus has not ascended the throne. He's not king over Israel. 
what's going on here? If he really was the promised one to come, or was there going to be another? John, in his depression, had figured he may have been wrong. Something was not what he expected. He should not be waiting in jail. The king should come and unlock the door and let him out and say, welcome into the kingdom. But he was going to die for his righteous stand against the evil ruler, Herod, and his immoral ways. Perhaps the triumphant Jesus should rescue me and save the people of the nation. That's quite a weakness for a man that we would think, as Jesus is about to say, is among the greatest who ever lived. In fact, among those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist, he says. But he's a man of like nature with us. Or could I say it this way? You are men and women of like nature as him. A similar uh, statement is made in James chapter 5 and verse number 17. It says there in James, Elijah was a man of the same nature as we are. And Elijah there is said to be a great prophet, and he prays, and, the, and uh, the rain stops, and he prays again, and the rain comes for three, three and a half years, no rain at his word, except he said the word, and that was Elijah. And you might say, well, how is that, that I could be of the same substance as Elijah? But notice that Elijah had also a major bout of prophetic depression. First Kings chapter 19. Take a, take a moment to just think about that section of Scripture for a moment. In just a moment. Jesus answers John. I'll just go through this quickly, and then we'll come to that passage in First Kings. He says uh, in verse 4, He said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's his answer to John's request. So Jesus instructed the disciples to return and tell them what they were observing. He had worked miracles, I think even right that day, in front of their very eyes so that they could see and be eyewitnesses of those marvels and tell John what they saw. Here's the report. John, the blind, see. The deaf hear, the dead live, the lame leap, the dumb speak. Sinners are forgiven. Lepers are cleansed. And he preaches the good news to the people of Israel. Now, he says here, just a little note, uh, when he says the gospel is preached to the poor, I want you to refactor your thinking on that word poor. Obviously, it always takes us to financial impoverishment. But I want you to remember this. Jesus emphasized not poverty of money in this gospel, but poverty of spirit. Remember that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, It says nothing about the economic, the blessedness of the economic status of a person or blessedness depending on the economic status. So those who focus on the economic meaning miss the need for the human spirit to be rightly aligned to God through faith in Christ and instead replace the idea of salvation from sin with the modern social justice idea of uh, salvation from oppression. 
That is a earthbound, worldly gospel. I put gospel there in quotes. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the social justice movement today has taken and run with this word poor. And they say, you know, we're supposed to be preaching a gospel, so to speak, of release from oppression, of liberation theology. Jesus did not promise elevation out of poverty, nor escape from all oppression in this life. In fact, we're going to see an example of that right here. He didn't say to John, just hang on, I'm going to spring you out in a couple days. He didn't say that. Okay. Now, the combination of miraculous activities demonstrates that the one doing those activities, John, is more than Moses. He's beyond Elijah. He exceeds Elisha or anyone else who has come before. In fact, he's alluding to a portion of Scripture which is a marvelous section in Isaiah 35. And I'm going to turn there and just read a couple of verses in Isaiah 35. It says in verses 4 through 6, speaking about the future glory of Zion. It says, Say to those, this is Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, John would fall into that category. Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's a picture of the future kingdom of Christ on earth. And so the Lord is saying, look, here's what I'm doing. That authenticates me as the one who is prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 35 and many other places as well. So Jesus gives that answer. The answer is basically, yes, I am the coming one. Here's why. Here's the proof. And then in verse number 6, notice this. It says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus pronounced a blessing upon John and others like him who were not offended at the person and message of Jesus. This reminds me of another blessing the Lord gave, John chapter 20, verse 29. Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe, yet who have not seen me, the Lord says. Blessed are you too, dear one, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are not offended at his teaching. There are Plenty of people today who are offended at his teaching. Plenty of people who stumble at that stumbling stone. People who are offended at the simple gospel message of Christ. You remember Simon uh, when he spoke to Joseph and Mary in the temple in the birth narrative? Luke chapter 2 says, This child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. There are people who will fall at that stumbling stone, some upon whom it will fall. and Grind them to powder. There are those who think it's foolish to believe in a man of Nazareth who died as a common criminal on a cross by the Roman soldiers. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. It's foolishness to those of the world. But blessed are those who believe in him. Let me just back that last phrase up with a particular text of Scripture. It's found in Romans chapter 9, 
probably overlooked in Romans 9, I think, because of the subject matter and how everybody gets turned around in Romans 9 with the sovereignty of God and all of that. But in Romans 9, 32, it says, uh, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Not be put to shame. The world might put you to shame, my friends, for your belief in Christ. But God will never put you to shame. And that's the one who really counts, isn't it? Now, we have a similar episode of depression that occurred in another prophet's life, and that is the life of Elijah. The back story of this it's found in 1 Kings 18. If you want to turn there and just look, but I, I hope you're familiar with it from uh, your own reading and from your Sunday school days, of the stories in the, the Old Testament, the history there. But Elijah has just called the nation to follow God, to turn away from their abominations and their false prophets and to be faithful to the Lord. And there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, they were killed. Uh, by uh, Elijah after that incident on Mount Carmel where they had the fire come down from heaven and consume that altar that was there. And this enraged Queen Jezebel, and she threatened Elijah's life. She obviously had something invested in these false prophets. She kind of liked their, their ways. And so she threatens his life. In the first uh, Kings chapter number 19, the scripture tells us the story. I'm going to turn there so I can be referencing it as I go through it. But 1 Kings in chapter number 19, you have uh, Elijah flee away because his life is now under threat. So she said that, uh, so let the gods do to me, verse 2, verse uh, chapter 19, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So 24 hours to live, Elijah. Well, God didn't see it that way, but Elijah arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He was finished. Ironic, isn't it, after a great victory the day or two before, that he's so despondent and uh, in fear of his life and says, look, you know, Jezebel doesn't even have to do it. Lord, just, just take me now. Just get me out of here. I'm done. Finished. But then it says, as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And then that happened a second time. And then he traveled a very far distance, over a month, almost a month and a half, to get to Horeb, the mountain of God. And he went in a cave and stayed there. And he told God, I've been very zealous for you, God. A couple of times he said this, and a couple of rounds of, of uh, beginning the conversation. And, and he said, I'm the only one left. Nobody's following you anymore. They've broken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the last one left. And that, he said again, I've been very zealous. I'm the last one. And the Lord said to him, 
Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, for the depression, God immediately treated Elijah with rest and nourishment. Rest and nourishment. And I often have given this prescription for people. If you're not well in your mind, if you're depressed, you need to... you need to have rest and nourishment if you don't have that in full supply. And so I have given that as well from this passage. You know how you feel if you're tired and you're exhausted and you're not nourished properly. Yeah, that was the immediate prescription for his depression. But there's far more than that, far more than that. You see the complaint of Elijah to God, that he'd been zealous for God, that's true, that Israel was abominable in their rejection of the covenant, that's true, and they were seeking the life of Elijah, that's true, at least some were, but what did God answer? You see how he answered? We, start, we just jumped right into the answer in verse number 15. You know, does he answer with a fluffy, they're there now, my son, God doesn't deal with us like babies. He says, I want you to go and do this and do that and do this other thing. With Hazael, with Jehu, with Elisha. um, And I want you to know one other thing. That's what God says to him. Very interesting. He'd already prescribed physical rest and nourishment. And he told Elijah, basically, number one, continue to serve me. He gave Elijah a particular assignment to do. Get busy about that assignment, Elijah. Secondly, he tells him in verse 17, uh, this, this passage, it talks about, you know, whoever gets missed by the one, I'll have the other one kill him, and if he gets missed, I'll have the other one kill him. And they say, well, what, what relevance does that have? Well, it's, it's saying God is accomplishing something on the earth. He's going to do something with these people that you're appointing, uh, Elijah, to their office. Look at what I will do through Jehu and Elisha, your replacement prophet, Elisha. And then number three, remember that the people of God have not disappeared. You have depression, rest and nourishment. Get busy about serving God. Look at what God's doing in the world, and remember that you're not the only one. In other words, look to God at what he's accomplishing. Look to truth. But anyway, I don't make a huge deal about this in the notes, but I want to I emphasize this. The truth to John was, I know this is the Lamb of God. I saw the Spirit. I saw the heavens. I heard the voice. I know this is the one. That's true. But when you're depressed, what happens to truth? It goes out of your mind. You've got to call yourself back to that which is true. Remember that which is right and true in the sight of God so that you will have right thinking. Depression serves to derail you and sidetrack you into false things.
thinking. Emphasize on the truth. If you look to yourself, you will invariably become more depressed. The prescription for self-centered depression is to get your eyes off of yourself. Get them onto God and his program. Get involved in what he is doing. You know, notice that you're not the only Christian out there. Sometimes we think, oh boy, you know, we're the only ones in Ann Arbor. We're the only ones in, not even close. There are other believers here in this town. There are other believers in nearby towns. There are other believers in southeast Michigan, many of them. Thousands of true Christians in around the nation. Oh, of course, it's not a huge percentage compared to 330 million, but still, a small percentage of 330 million can still be millions of souls, right? Thank God for them. There are more than 7,000. So get involved in what God is doing. Notice that you're not the only one, the only one who has difficulties. And John was told something similar. Did you see that? Behold the works of the Messiah. The dead are raised. The lame leap. The blind see. The deaf hear. The mute speak. The gospel is preached. Notice that, John. Don't forget. Yes, you've been sidelined. But that doesn't mean God's work stops. You're old and bedridden at home. Your memory is beginning to fail. Just know this, God is still working. God is still working. Something might not be what you hoped for or expected. John, you know, I shouldn't be waiting in jail this long and about to die for a righteous stand. Perhaps, you know, Jesus will will rescue me. But no, you know, you might say, oh, I, I don't feel like all that. I don't feel like serving God. But by the way, can I just emphasize that again? You're depressed. Get up and serve God. Get up and do one little step of service to God. Open your Bible. Get on your knees and pray. Go help somebody who needs help. Call somebody on the phone. You get out of yourself and get out there to serve God and recognize that God is working in this world. Don't forget that. That's how, this is how you battle against depression, okay, as a believer in Christ. If you say, woe is me, I I don't feel like doing all of that, now you're making excuses and disobeying God's word in the application of our sermon today. I I can't help you if you're in that mindset. Turn away from a self-focus and turn to a Godward focus and see how that improves your outlook. You know, you might say, I I don't know what to do next. This is what depression does. You know, I don't feel like getting up. I don't know what to do next. Take one step, even a simple one in serving God. Ask a trusted Christian friend for advice. Serve somebody else. Recall God's blessings to you before and his promises to you in the future. In other words, depression. Look to Jesus. Get your eyes off of self. Get them on the Lord and watch what happens. I'm not saying that it's gonna, your, your dark feeling is going to dissipate in two seconds. I'm not holding out that kind of foolish promise. This, the, the cycle of life is just that. There are ups and downs. There are stages, phases. There are times when you're not feeling well and all of that. But you have to engage the battle and not wallow in self-pity like Elijah or like John and learn what God would have you to do 
and how to serve him. When we get our eyes off of God, things go awry, don't they? Yeah, in our minds. We need to get our eyes right on what the Lord is doing. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for showing us a biblical prescription that will help us when we get kind of turned around in ourselves and have difficulties. Look at what you're doing, God. You're still planting churches in the world. You're still calling people to salvation. We've heard the testimonies. We see progress even in our own lives in our church when we look at how we are today compared to what we were a few years ago. Perhaps, Lord, though, we've, we've focused upon our, our own depression, our own problems, and not made the kind of progress we should, but we can again. I pray you'd help us to see that through this text of Scripture, the examples of Elijah and of John and what you told them. Behold the works of the Lamb of God. Once again, John, don't miss what you know as truth. Go back to that rock-solid truth. Don't give up on that truth. Remind yourself of that truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.